The Old Testament lesson is from the book of Psalms, chapter 20, uh, on page 456 in your pew Bible. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your, your salvation and in the name of our God set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven and with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fail, but we rise and stand upright. Our Lord, save the King. May he answer us when we call. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Josh Casey. I am uh, going to do my best uh, Pastor Will impression today uh, to, uh, to fill the pulpit here. Um, I am uh, not the normal preacher, if you have not been here uh, before. I am uh, pastor for discipleship up in Cedar Rapids at Stonebridge Church. Um, and the reason why you have me and not Pastor Will is because, um, partly because Will has uh, out, and we preach so much about Sabbath rest, and we believe so much about Sabbath rest, it's, it's nice for those who are preaching on that to take that. Um, and so that's a, that's a bit of uh, the gift that uh, that pulpit supply is, uh, is is giving, but also there's a vision up at, at Stonebridge Church that they have said as soon as I, I got there, said that I know a lot of uh, solo pastors in the area, and uh, and I know that they, uh, they need a break. Um, and, uh, and Snowbridge Church has said, hey, you're not the primary preacher. You can go down and help relieve our brothers so that they can continue in, uh, in a sustainable faithfulness. And so I know I mentioned that last week, but if you are, are not here and wondering, and this is your first time uh, being here or being back for a while and wondering why I don't look like the normal guy, I'm not the normal guy. You'll get the normal guy, Lord willing, next week. Um, but uh, hopefully, before I get the uh, sermon done, you don't you know, chase me out of here by then. Um, but um, yeah, as far as uh, we go for, for our sermon today, we'll be in Psalm 20. Um, and uh, I know that we do have um, some, uh, some, some students, some kids here with us as well. I know that um, one of my favorite things to do as far as uh, taking sermon notes is I think on the back of your, your bulletin, you've got a blank space there. If you're a note taker, that's a great spot for it. But also if you're a kid, a student, Psalms are so big in pictures. And so it'd be really cool to see, just as you listen to this, as you read through this, to draw a picture of what you see uh, in Psalm 20. It's a great way of locking in those truths that are, uh, that are there in the text. Um, and then you can, you know, shade it or color it however your, uh, your pens or crayons work uh, that way. Um, but for the rest of us, um, we will, uh, you, I guess you could also draw pictures if you want. Um, so I'm not going to exclude you from that. But we will be here going top to bottom uh, in Psalm 20. Uh, I am going to be preaching, assuming a little bit that you are, uh, have the Bible open. I think uh, uh, John had said it's um, page 456 in your, uh, in your pew Bible there if you did not bring a Bible um, today. So let's enter into this, uh, this blessed battle hymn of God. So let's start here by imagining the scene that this, this battle hymn was sung in. Imagine the scene with me here. The sun's rising, 
to reveal the soldiers of ancient Israel emerging from their tents. As they prepare for battle, dressing themselves and assembling under the banner for orders, you can feel a mix of fear and hope and adrenaline as thick as the morning mist that surrounds them. However anxious they are for the battle that is about to ensue, hope prevails in the singing of their anthem, a battle hymn prepared by their king, David. And now, they remind each other through song as they sing Psalm 20 of the salvation of the Lord. And at the very end, they declare to each other, O Lord, save the king. May he answer when we call. And you see, Psalm 20 is oftentimes paired with Psalm 21. They're kind of a call and a response. We're calling out to the Lord, and then we see what his response is. Today, we're going to focus only on Psalm 20, but we're going to see that these together are a battle hymn to be sung by God's people in the day of trouble, written by uh, the king, sung to, ultimately, the king of kings. This psalm points us to salvation through the Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ. This royal battle anthem invites us as the people of God to take up the war banner of our crucified king, fight for the sake of the gospel, and steady our hearts as we cry to the Lord for salvation with expectation. And so I know that that's what we're going to do. That's what this psalm is, but I know that may not be exactly where we're at today. We, we have this idea of, of battling. We have this idea of, of the world around us, the relationships with us, and we all come uh, here today in very different ways. Um, Psalm, or Proverbs 21 maybe mentions one way that, that some of us have come today. It says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. I bet we could all name what we think our next battle is this week. But the wisdom of Proverbs steadies our hearts. I bet many of us are ready to fight, uh, to fight fights in, in the realm of ideas or fight against uh, systems or people or maybe even one another. We may have done that already this, this week. But I want to encourage us, war horses ready for battle in a world that is so engaged in the war. Let's pause for a moment. Consider what is our present battle. Consider what actually is the victory we are looking for. And to take up the banner of our God as we trust in the name of the Lord for each skirmish of our days. So we're going to look at three ways to do this. The psalm divides up pretty nicely. Um, and so these first, uh, the first uh, encouragement I give you is through uh, verses 1 through 3 uh, there. The first thing we need to do is to turn to the Lord for our help. We need to go honestly to the Lord for the real help that we need. As we sing this song to one another, just as the, uh, the soldiers of Israel would have sung to one another, the first words that we get there in verse 1, may the Lord answer you. Oh, how sweet it is to remind one another that the Lord hears and answers us. But I think even sweeter is is, is the people of God when they can assume that there are actually prayers to be answered because the people of God are actually praying. And so the first encouragement I would give you is that in order to hear an answer for the Lord, you must first go to the Lord and pray. So brothers, 
sisters, friends, you must pray to the Lord in your day of trouble if you are to receive his answer. It sounds simple, but it's a good thing we need to remember and forget often. Pray. Pray for help. Pray for hope. Pray for forgiveness of your sins. Pray for your enemies and for those who persecute you. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. Pray to that Lord. And so we get to verse 2 now. We get to verse 2, which clarifies the help that we need. It comes not from books, from news media outlets, from fine-sounding arguments, chariots and horses, from right political leaders, or even our own strength. The help that we truly need comes from the Lord, which he sends from his holy sanctuary in Zion. It comes from outside of us. I have found, I mean, this sounds really great. This sounds like what a preacher is supposed to say, right? Now, is this what a preacher actually does? I don't know, not all the time. I found that in the day of trouble, I catch myself, in essence, praying to others more than I'm praying to God. What do we mean by this? Um, I oftentimes find that the second or third time I rehash the troubles that I'm going through and I haven't actually changed anything. I'm just telling another person again and again and going through the list of people that might tolerate or listen or validate my experience. I'm finding that in essence, I, I, I'm praying to them. And what I might need to do is rather than talk to the next person, I should converse with God. And I've learned that in that second and third conversation that for me, I need to activate that habit of quietness. I need to turn to the Lord and pray to him and then listen to his answer patiently as I meditate on the word that he's already given me. And I find that recalibrates me to turning to the right kind of help. Otherwise, my prayers oftentimes are superhero prayers. God, give me more patience. God, give me more uh, clarity of my words. God, call me for a season to make me endure this thing rather than actually hitting what we, what we just sang for is shalom. That's a work of the Lord. I find that this rhythm of reflection, often rather than validating that I'm right and they're wrong, it, it often exposes that I'm also wrong. It moves me to contrition, to, uh, to, to humility. In a way, it exposes that I'm actually living, in the way that I'm processing my trouble, I'm living unvirtuously, and even as an enemy of God. I'm naming enemies of God in a way that enemies of God name others. And that in itself is sin. But there is hope, because even as I process, even as we turn to the Lord for help, there is salvation for all. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, that even when we mess up as Christians, that there's salvation for all. Verses 4 and 5 help us with this. Uh, last week, if you were here, you remember Psalm 19 invited us to consider how creation and law exist in order to focus us to our deepest need of forgiveness of sin. Creation and law move us to confession and Christ. But now on the other side of this, Psalm 20 and 21 do the same, but they do it from the other side here. They invite us to shouts of joy for salvation, having been made blameless through Christ. 
our delivering king. And so what is this salvation that we actually get, that we're singing of, that we are, that we are praising the Lord for? You see, the word salvation shows up quite a bit here in only a few verses in this, in this uh, psalm. And so it might be good to, uh, to understand what we're talking about here. Salvation is generally um, outside deliverance from a present distress. So you're in some trouble, and salvation is not you saving yourself, uh, but rather something coming in, intervening, and pulling you from this, this, uh, this trouble that you're in. And as we think of this present distress that we might be in, uh, it seems that it's both physical and spiritual. This present distress uh, can be physical. As we read in the Bible, we see it so many times. Um, we read an uh, example of um, it being resolved by God oftentimes uh, appointing or anointing an individual to serve as that deliverer. Like, let's think of uh, Moses. Moses is appointed by God to go and deliver the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. Uh, we, we, we move for, forward a little bit further. Uh, God uses Joshua to deliver Israel from the, uh, the pagans that, uh, that, that inhabit the land that he has promised them. And then they get in there and they, God sets up the judges and the kings to continually deliver. He anoints the kings here to deliver his people from those around him. And in fact, the psalm that we are reading is a song in part of the battle hymn in that act of deliverance that's happening. We're reading a song from the history of God working in this way. But the problem is that it's not always just that God's people are good and everybody else is bad to be fought. God's people, everyone that I've named in here, all the examples, they are sinners as well. By our own choice, we have caused a different kind of distress. Not simply physical, but also a spiritual distress. Throughout the Old Testament, we get, we get this development of this idea of salvation, this idea of, of distress. In Ezekiel 37, it kind of turns the corner and takes on a, a truly spiritual tone here. Ezekiel 37, 23 reads, I will save them and all, from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Right there, the Lord says, I will save them. I will deliver them. From what? From their backslidings and their sin. At that point, we have become like them. We have enacted distress, spiritual distress. There is a brokenness in our relationship with God. As verse 2 tells us, this help comes from outside of us. The help that we truly need, the salvation we need, comes from his sanctuary in Zion. Verse 4 says it comes from his holy heaven. So what am I saying here? I'm just developing this a little bit uh, as, as far as what salvation is. It seems that out of his merciful, steadfast love, God takes the initiative to anoint one more king for salvation. A spirit through Jeremiah, prophesied, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Then I will raise up from David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This prophesied branch in the line of David is Jesus Christ, the anointed king of kings. It's amazing 
how the Lord just doesn't give up on us. He continues to send deliverance. Psalm 20, verse 6 reads, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. This is David crying out, even though he didn't have the whole idea of Christ, he cries out preemptively, uh, prophetically, that the Lord will save this one. You see, on the cross, Jesus was mocked as the Lord's anointed, his chosen one. He was mocked as a king who couldn't even save himself. And just before dying a criminal's death, death, this anointed king, Jesus Christ, makes one last petition. He says, Father, forgive them. The rest of verse 6 says, And God will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. It's amazing that on the cross, the king cries out in the battle against sin and death and wrath, save them, forgive them. Two things happened there on that battle on the cross. The first was deliverance from spiritual death through forgiveness of sins. King Jesus took on the holy, consuming wrath of God in our place. Why has he done this? 1 Thessalonians 5 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus fought the fight and won the victory over death. Therefore, he moves us from wrath to relationship if we have faith. See, in taking the penalty of our sin on the cross and making us morally clean, we can now stand in the presence of God. All seems to be made right. Romans 5, verse 10 says, For while we were still sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, this is incredible. This is a very different battle than what I had imagined when I walked in here today. Well, I knew what the sermon was, so I'd already been thinking about this a bit. But this is different than what we might normally name as the battle before us. Uh, a second thing, though. Uh, the first, the first uh, aspect of, of victory, of deliverance, was from spiritual death to life. The second victory on the cross happened was from slavery to freedom. Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through faith or who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You get that? You are free. I mean, sometimes we don't, we don't quite live that way. Uh, the Lord has released us from those things that, 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 that shame us, those things that we always think, if anyone knew this about me, or I can't ever shake that. No matter how much I go to church, for some reason, there's just always something in my mind that says, that thing, they're going to find out. And, and God can get over it because God's way more loving than the people that you go to church with. But if they find out, even those things are the things that, are fear to slavery. Fear to the slavery of the evil one. He has conquered even that. 
Theologian Wayne Grudem puts it this way. He says, because of Christ's death on the cross, our sin is completely forgiven. Satan has no rightful authority over us, end quote. I'll say that again because I think that there are people here today that need to hear that. Satan has no rightful authority over us because we have a crucified and risen Savior. The victory is won. Christian, you are in a battle that is already won. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not go to the other side. Do not feel as though you can't be worthy enough of God's love and go back into the way of death. You're free from it. And the great thing about this freedom is not simply just an idea in our heads. I think Christians, we oftentimes think this is just a great idea. I feel good. What does this mean in our daily life? I think first of all, it changes the identity we should have of ourselves as we interact with those around us every day. We're not paid mercenaries. We're not on assignment by the church to do a thing. We're not slave soldiers forced to fight, maybe so that God loves us more. Through the raised, ascended, victorious king, we're free. And so the question for the rest of our time will be, how do we fight as freed men and women? Verses 6 through 8 are pretty helpful. It seems as though trust is a big part of this. It seems as though as we fight, we trust in the name of the Lord to achieve salvation that we cannot gain for others. Verses 7 and 8, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. There's something sweet that happens as as you go slowly through the poetry of the Psalms. Um, I think it's right around verse 5 we get this turn here. There's a lot of talking about you. He will answer you. He will do this for you. He will do this for you. And then in verse 5, it switches to may we shout for this. In verse 6, or verse 7, sorry, we trust in the name of the Lord. The we there are the people of God. The people of God are those who through repentant faith have been saved from death and res- by the re- death and resurrection of Jesus. They're now part of his church and under the authoritative head of Jesus Christ. That's who the we are there. If you have repentant faith, then you are a brother and sister in Christ. You are part of the church. You are part of the people of God, and we all stand under the name of Jesus Christ. And as the church under the name of Jesus, we trust in the name of Jesus in all that we do. And when we do trust his name, the text says that rather than collapse and fall, repentant believers rise and stand upright. If Christians trust in the Lord alone for deliverance from sin, then we also must trust in the Lord alone to fight the right fights for the sake of the gospel. So here we get to fighting for the Lord. We had read a text today 
already, and I'll, I'll refer to it again. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. It is so easy for us as Christians to, to, to stop where we are reconciled with God, and we think we are holy, we are right, which is, is pretty true, but then we move outward to others, and either we, we focus on evangelizing uh, them so that they, they just get it, or we just condemn them. And I want to speak to that here for a moment. Is how, what is the right fight? How do we go about our skirmishes throughout the day? I think this is exactly what Psalm uh, 20 verse 7 is saying. We are not waging war according to the flesh. What does it mean to say according to the flesh? That's a very Christian kind of term, according to the flesh. And the weapons of the flesh seem to be, as, I, as I've thought about it, they seem to be uh, any kind of I don't know, weapon, uh, verbal, emotional, relational kind of a weapon, anything you do to hurt someone uh, that is forged from uh, the material of the stubbornness of human pride. It seems like anything that is created from human pride would be a very viable weapon of the flesh. See, the, the, the strange thing, though, about this, this resource of human pride that we make our weapons out of is that it always sets against itself other humans. We have to bring them down. We have to be better than them. That's, that's what human pride is doing. And maybe if I say that a little differently, human pride always sets as its enemy other image bearers of God. That's a great way to think of the people that you interact with. Whether they are saved or not, they are all image bearers of God. Our battle is not simply against evil or ignorant people. And it seems that, uh, that, that this, maybe at this point, is, is, is where American evangelicals, uh, which, is, which is mainly us, um, we may have been getting this wrong, increasingly so for the last several decades. As we put in focus, maybe not always, but not, uh, often, but not always, we put in focus people. When we disagree with others, we pull out these weapons of the flesh and we go crusading. Uh, we, uh, we, 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 we do whatever we do to hurt others. We condemn them as, uh, as, as, as hellbound. We, we, we think that they are just evil, inherently evil, or we, or we you know, maybe say they're just, they're just too dumb to understand all the complexities of what I'm trying to tell them, even if I'm telling them something simple. We have ways of making people less than us. And then in our crusade we say, and the Lord wills it so. While there may be some truth to each of these assumptions, it seems like that might be a horribly uh, demeaning uh, and unhelpful way to approach conversation and relationships in general. And so maybe uh, if you have that, uh, your, your notes there, maybe you can draw you know, a little bit here. There's a little bit of chart that I go through because it's hard for me sometimes to uh, engage with other people and disagree with them and not go to the ways I'm saying the Bible tells us not to go. This is a helpful maybe rubric that I've used when engaging in people, uh, with people. So it's basically, it's four columns and two rows. So across the top here, you have uh, just this, this spectrum of maybe receptivity. Um, you have against, you have closed, for, and open. Against, 
closed, for, and open. Generally how receptive someone is to something, right? And then in the rows there, you can put uh, informed and ignorant. Do they know the same things you know, and, or do they not know the same things you know? And now what we're looking at here is basically, in the Christian speaking, uh, do these people know who Christ is? They might find, or, or do they believe in the values? Do they, do they go through the Sermon on the Mount and they say, I've heard this before? We find sometimes we really disagree with people in the world because we just don't even have the same information that we're working with. And then even when we do, we have varying levels of which we're against or for it. It seems as though when calling out enemies of God, the Lord picks only one of those potential eight categories of a person. If we read on in 2 Corinthians 10, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Right there. Those are his enemies. Against the knowledge. They have the knowledge of God and they said, I'm against this. Now just a, a quick heart check. If you go through any of the fights, the battles that you're in right now with others, are those other people truly against the knowledge of God? Passionately so. They might be closed. Are they truly against? We're not moving. We are against everything you're saying. If not, it sure seems like salvation is the first step. That the gospel, that God can bring people to Christ or forgive even Christians of their sin might be the approach we need. I say this because it, it seems that in, in our text here, it, it really says this. Uh, verse 4, if the king's heart's desire is for salvation, deliverance from their, their trouble, uh, if, the Lord, or if the king's petition is for salvation, that's, that's verse 5, and then verse 6, and if the answer from heaven comes from the Lord's saving right hand, it sure seems like we should fight the spiritual battle of our present age with the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And so I've talked a lot about a lot of different things here in battle. Uh, victory, I just want to name that. Victory comes from turn, hearts turning in repentance to the king. That is the victory that we've been given. That is the victory as it has been named. And that is what we seek. And if victory is a turning of hearts to the Lord it seems that we fight with the loving truth of the gospel, that God saves repentant sinners. God saves repentant sinners. Whether they have been Christian or whether they have never known the gospel, God saves repentant sinners. There are, uh, even though I'm saying all of this and focusing on salvation, there are individuals, ideas, institutions that are against the gospel and should be opposed for the sake of Christ. Uh, for psalms that, that uh, and battle hymns that suggest this or, or really pronounce this, Psalm uh, 21, Psalm 149, those are, those are really great, zesty psalms for, uh, for the day of battle against the enemies. Psalm 20 contributes to the whole battle plan of rallying Christians to lead with salvation. I have found in my experience over the years in conversations that it seems that a redeemed soul and a sanctified mind are much more easily persuaded 
to the way of Christ than is a, an unbelieving heart that's been battered by Christian platitudes and, and convictions. Give them Christ first. Even when the image of a person has been corrupted by their sin, the Christian value of the Imago Dei reminds us that every human being is still worthy of honor and respect. So even as we engage, we do so with honor and respect. An example in my own life, a, few, uh, a f- couple years ago, um, it's a, a very a personal one here. Um, when my cousin slid a button with preferred pronouns across the table to me and said, you're a Christian, I'm non-binary polyamorous, do you reject me? Shots fired. The way the question was presented, I knew we're not conversing, we're fighting. What do you do in that moment? Oh, how sweet it was that day to have the sword of truth at my side. The countless mornings with the sacred writings, as 2 Timothy tells us, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise. That's what it says. Make you wise in, if you know the rest of the verse, you know I'm going the wrong direction here, but it makes you wise not in the nuances of gender fluidity and expressive individualism. It makes you wise, the rest of the verse says, for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I didn't need to know all the intricacies of the argument because the word of the Lord had given me everything I needed to know for that conversation. Sharper than any two-edged sword, I was able to explain with gospel precision that both my cousin and I are sinners equally in need of a savior. The difference between my cousin and I is that I have repentant faith and rally under the banner of the cross. My cousin does not. And it was both good, bittersweet. And my cousin said, I have never heard a Christian talk like that. That's unfortunate. <laughs> so I feel like that's the basics of the gospel right there. But where we stand is we, we move forward. But I would ask, please pray for my cousin. Salvation has not yet come. But I have hope because I read Psalm 20. And I know that salvation may come. And so, what I do then is I keep fighting the right fight, urging for salvation. Because until we rally under the cross together, we will never approach that topic the same way. The Lord will judge. The Lord will triumph. Our victory is not in defeating people or converting them to our every opinion. So Christian soldiers, our marching orders are to steward the gospel such that people hear, turn, and are healed. In doing so, we're trusting in and conforming to the name of our Lord, which is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's true. We're in days of trouble. There are endless skirmishes with which we can engage. Fight the fight of saving souls. As you do, Cry out for salvation with expectation. Verse 9, may he answer when we call. Let's pray.
O God, Father of all, whose Son commanded us to love our enemies, lead them and us from prejudice to truth. Deliver them and us from hatred, cruelty, and revenge. And in your good time, enable us all to stand reconciled before you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.